0: Well, back in October, I attended a disaster relief training session. In case you're unaware of that, the disaster relief uh, ministry is our denomination's focus to help people recover from natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, and floods. Uh, They have about 82,000 trained volunteers. It's an amazing workforce they have and over 1,500 mobile units which will go and provide food and housing and so on, repair work for people who have been devastated by these natural disasters. And, I'm, and myself, I'm trying to work toward receiving my chaplaincy certification like Mark Billet did a couple of years ago. Now at his training time, the speaker was a lady named Naomi Padgett, who actually used to attend our church a number of years ago. And has since moved. But uh, she was sharing about her many experiences around the world. One experience that she shared that, for whatever reason, just kind of struck me that day, was uh, kind of a, a relatively rare natural disaster. And that was a mudslide. You guys remember the Oso mudslide in Washington State that happened back in 2014? That's a picture of it right there. You see how the right side of that hill is just kind of cleaned off there? Well, apparently that used to be trees, and it just caved in. Tremendous mudslide, covered about one square mile, and killed 43 people. Great tragedy. 49 homes in addition to this were destroyed. So, to compound things for the survivors um, of those who survived the mudslide, mudslide insurance is uncommon. So in the state of Washington, actually, there were not any companies that sold mudslide insurance. You would have had to have purchased it from a state agency outside of Washington, okay? So for these homeowners, not only was your house destroyed, but you could not be reimbursed for your house. I mean, these houses were totally destroyed. They ended up sometimes a mile or so away from where they were. It gets worse. If you had a mortgage on the house, you were still legally bound to pay for that mortgage. To top it off, now who is going to want to ever buy that property that you used to own, right? So basically, these homeowners lost all of their money with no home or property to show for it. Can you imagine the grief experienced by such a loss? And life is full of such disasters, natural disasters or other things. People experience the desertion of a spouse or parent who leaves the home for selfish reasons. People experience the loss of a job, even though they were diligent workers. People experience an illness that permanently alters their lives. Last night after our visit with Miss Ellie, uh, I just fought off tears, thinking about how this has been such a tough year for her. She was such a vibrant person, even in her mid-80s. And now for the past year, she's been confined, basically, to a bed, unable to talk. And we know, Miss Ellie, how she loved to talk. And now she can't do it. Perhaps worst of all, people experience the loss of a loved one. Almost three years ago, I still remember pulling into the Kmart shopping plaza. And on a Sunday afternoon, heard from my oldest brother that his son was in critical condition. And he died later that night. We drove to Richmond for the funeral. And it was such a difficult trip. And our whole family was just devastated. Life is full of grief. And I'm not just talking about a a disappointment that we experience. Minor traffic accident that inconveniences us or something i'm talking about deep deep grief it's very hard to fathom i apologize And our response to this grief is really important. As soon as that grief hits, we are forced to either grow closer to God or to grow colder to God. Grief can sink our relationship with Him, or God can use it to strengthen our relationship with Him. And Christ is able to do that. Do you believe that? He is. In his book, God's Healing for Life's Losses, Robert Kellerman says, Christianity doesn't in any way lessen suffering. It enables you to take it, to face it, to work through it, and eventually convert it. Grief does not have to have the last say in our lives. As you know, we're in the midst of this series called Jesus is Greater, Finding Hope and God's and finding hope in life struggles, and we've been covering these topics like doubt, anger, and temptation, depression, and things that we struggle with. And we're in the midst of four, a string of four messages about related areas, but still distinct areas: guilt, regret, forgiveness, and grief. And this is how I've been distinguishing them. Guilt focuses on sinful things that we do. Regret focuses on foolish things that we do. Forgiveness focuses on sinful things done to us, whereas grief focuses on bad things that happen to us. So this morning I want to focus on and understand and believe what the Lord has to say about grief and how Jesus is greater. The first point I want us to see here this morning is that our grief should be expressed. Is that our grief should be expressed. I think in our culture there's a temptation that when we see grief, it's a lack of strength. It's a lack of strength. Maybe we can shed a few tears, but that's about it. We need to suck it up. We need to move on. Life goes on. It is what it is, and other things that we say. But when you look in the pages of Scripture, that's not what you find. You find people who are overwhelmed by grief, and who express it. Job grieved the sudden loss of his children and his possessions. In Genesis 23, Abraham wept over the death of his wife Sarah. In Genesis 37, Jacob mourned over the loss of his son, Joseph. In Deuteronomy 24, the nation of Israel mourned for 30 days over the loss of their irreplaceable leader, Moses. In 2 Samuel 12, David wept for the loss of his infant son. These individuals expressed great consternation what they were going through. They didn't bottle it up. He said, well, maybe that was just their culture. That's how they expressed themselves. Well, perhaps that might be an element of truth in that. But I think the scriptures are given as a model for us to emulate in how we are to live our lives. And I think this is most poignantly demonstrated in the life of Jesus. You might think, well, maybe since Jesus is God in human flesh, that we would never expect him to grieve. Because he knows things that we don't know, right? He knows things from all of eternity. He knows the full picture. He's able to see and perceive hearts and minds and know things that we don't know. So since he knows all this, he'll see it and put it all together and not be grieved. Or maybe his power, which we know was you know, unique and able to heal things and heal the sick that he would not grieve because he could just heal things and heal people of the things that were struggling or or plaguing them. And certainly those things are true. But we have to remember that Jesus was fully man. He didn't just look like a man or appear to be a man. He was fully man in all of his makeup and emotions. Therefore, he experienced grief too. In Isaiah 53, it was prophesied That when the Messiah came, He would be like this. It says in Isaiah 53.3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see this in His life and ministry in various occasions. But I think the most poignant example of Jesus' grief, an example for us, is found in John chapter 11. I invite you to turn there. Page 898, if you care to join along here. John chapter 11. This is the instance where Jesus' friend Lazarus died. If you recall the story, Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. But he did not go and rush to be with his friend and to heal him. And in the meantime, Lazarus passed away. When Jesus finally arrived four days later, Lazarus' sister Mary met him and she was weeping. So then we go to John chapter 11, verses 33 to 35. And it relates what happens next. Everybody there? It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. It's so powerful, those two words. Jesus wept. When he encountered them, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was deeply moved in his spirit, even though he knew that Lazarus was going to die. It was no shock for him. And he was grieved, even though he knew that momentarily he was going to raise Lazarus again from the dead. He grieved even though He knew that He would raise Lazarus again at the end of time at the great resurrection. In John 11.25, Jesus had just told Mary a few moments ago, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus twice. He's going to raise him in a couple minutes and then He's going to raise him at the end of time for His resurrection body. So why would He weep? Why would he weep? I believe he wept because he felt the sting of Lazarus' death. He saw the suffering of Lazarus' family and their friends. Jesus doesn't hide his emotions. He doesn't minimize or dismiss their grief. He doesn't stop to give them a theological lesson about how this isn't the end. He just stops in his tracks, sees what is going on, and weeps. Grief is an inevitable part of our lives. It's part of this fallen order that we live in. And therefore, it is something that should be expressed. You should not feel guilty. It's not weak. It's not wrong. It's something that God, I believe, wants us to do. Pastor Bill Hybels discussed a friend who has a brain-damaged daughter. The mother wrote him a letter that he shared in a sermon he gave that uh, she, she gave him permission to quote. And she said, quote, I can hardly bear it sometimes. My most recent wave of grief came just last year before her 16th birthday. As the day approached, I found myself brooding over all the things that she would never be able to do. What did I do? What I've learned to do again and again. I did what I believe is the only thing to do to conquer grief, and that is to embrace it. So Bill, I cried and cried and cried and faced the truth of my grief, head on. She expressed her grief. I believe that's the truth that God would have for us today. To not deny it, because I think if we deny it, we're only exposing our pride that somehow we think we can do this all in our own strength. The great poet Shakespeare said in his play Macbeth, Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak knits up the overwrought heart and bids it break. Give sorrow words. We should express our grief. That leads to the second point. The second point is that prayer is the best way to express grief. We need to remember in our prayer that God and His precious promises that He loves us and He cares for us. We see this in the Scriptures. On a national level, when the nation was going through such suffering in the the land of Egypt, God tells them in Exodus 3.7, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. We see this on a personal level as people cry out, to God. The Lord cares for us. We see this in Psalm 56.8 where it says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 34.18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. But friends, it's important for us to remember that we need to seek His comfort and not just kind of presume upon it, right? We should seek the Lord in prayer. And I love how the Scripture provides these examples for us that we are when we're in the grieving process of how we are to pray, and we're not just to bottle up, and we're not just to maybe express our frustrations and grief to the air, but we are to go to God. First Samuel 1:10 speaks of Hannah who was unable to have children at this point in her life and she says it says about her she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She wept bitterly. You look at the Psalms. I love the Psalms. So many people love the Psalms because they there are heartfelt praises and prayers to God. And there's 150 psalms, but did you know that the biggest category of psalms are what is known as lament psalms? A lament psalm is where someone expresses their grief to God. And depending upon how you categorize it, there are about 50 or 60 of our psalms that fall into this category of lament psalms. Here's an example of a powerful lament might be familiar with it. Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? When you read that, it kind of hits some folks as sounding irreverent, right? To speak so directly to God in the midst of your grief. But I think we should reevaluate that mindset. Rather than speaking to some kind of passive deity, which we sometimes tend to do, the psalmists speak directly to God. The God who made them, the God who redeemed them. And you know what? I would say that it's more reverent to go directly to God than just to grumble and complain about our circumstances, right? The psalmists they recognize that God is ultimately control of our circumstances and He wants us to view life this way. The language of the Psalms isn't shocking if we really believe that God is sovereign over all things, the good and the hard times, right? But again, I want us to look at Jesus' example, because it's so powerful. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, if you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 26, we find a passage that always just amazes me. And that's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had just celebrated the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, excuse me, with His disciples. And He went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And it says in Matthew chapter 26, Verses 37 to 39, these words. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. This passage is just so fascinating. Jesus was overwhelmed by what he faced. He grieved over the desertion of his disciples. He grieved over the rejection of the religious leaders and the crowds who would, say, crucify him. He grieved over the physical pain of the cross, which was the worst kind of capital punishment in the day. But most of all, Jesus grieved over the wrath of God he would endure for our sins and for the separation he would experience from the Father. Jesus, as we know, he didn't deserve any of this, did he? This was not his doings. But yet he was standing in our place. He would suffer and die. And so Jesus, in this moment of greatest sorrow... He doesn't just grieve, does He? He doesn't just bury His head in the ground and cry, which is good to do, but He directs that grief up to the Father. And please note that Jesus is very candid in how He prays. He doesn't just pray a a sugar-coated prayer. He tells Him exactly what He is feeling and what He wants. And he says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He wanted to know, is there any way possible that I can avoid the agonies of the cross? Can this cup, which symbolizes suffering, is there any way that I can avoid drinking down this cup to the fullest? That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it that Jesus says that? that he speaks that way. He's so candid. And I think we have much to learn from Jesus. We should do the same. To express our hearts and our griefs to God and asking Him to remove them. And please note, though, that Jesus' prayer, it doesn't end with just expressing His grief. His prayer ended with trust. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. He surrendered to the will of God. He trusted the character of God. He trusted the plan of God, even though that involved Him going to the cross. He trusted. And His words, they really just echo what we find so many times in those lament psalms, which start off with deep expressions of grief and sorrow But by the end of the psalm, usually they end up in a heartfelt word of praise and trust in God. Psalm 13, which I read just a few moments ago, how long, O Lord? You know, just these incredible cries of grief and so candid words to the Lord. Well, it ends just a few verses later in verses 5 and 6 by saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He... Has dealt bountifully with me. And this is where God wants us take, to take us all the way to the end. You follow me? He doesn't want us just to stay in the pits of despair. He wants us to move from problem to praise. And I truly believe that in every situation, no matter how deep and unbearable it might seem, that we really haven't truly resolved it in our heart and sought the Lord to the fullest until we're able, like the psalmist and like Jesus, to go from the pits of despair and the agonies of grief to be able, even if it's just kind of in a limited fashion, to be able to trust God and to praise Him and to see what He's doing through this. Friends, God isn't afraid of our honest prayers. He knows how we think anyway. And He wants us to share our, our burdens with Him. And He wants us to direct our deepest hurts toward Him. Because He is the one, the only one, who can actually do something about it. He brings a measure of comfort that is completely impossible for other humans to do. I love the words of 2 Corinthians 1-3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And this was written by a man, the Apostle Paul, who saw a tremendous amount of sorrow and grief in his life. But yet he knew and could trust that God was the God of all comfort. In his book, uh, Hurting with God, Old Testament professor Glenn Pemberton writes about how the end, through the end of one of his classes on the Psalms, he asked the students to write, what was the most significant thing that you learned from this class? And they wrote different things and so on. But one girl wrote these words, which I thought were very powerful She said, "Since my mother died my freshman year, and even more so after my father's death this year, it has been a struggle for me to maintain a healthy prayer life. I did not question God, the relationship I have with Him, but I wasn't honest. After the first week in this class, I began praying Psalm 13 and finding that if I wasn't, uh, that if I was honest with God, sometimes angry with Him, then I could truly talk and pray to God." more earnestly this class has taught me how to hurt with God rather than without him amen so if we're going to grow in processing grief not just dismissing it I think God wants us to see from the examples of Scripture to see from the example of Christ how to express that grief to the Lord not bodily enough. Not trying to pretend it doesn't exist. Not trying to act like we can walk through this fallen world and not go through these things, but to give them to the Lord in prayer. And then to continue to seek Him and to arrive at that place. But even if it's not to the, all the way completely there, to be at a place where we can praise God. We can move from the problem to the praise. We can move from the pits of despair to the place that we have joy in our God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your word says in Psalm 46 that you are a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Lord, we praise You this morning that You are indeed almighty and loving. And Lord, I pray for our church here today. I pray that You would help each believer to share their burden. And Lord, I know there's many things in many hearts today, past, present, maybe even in the future, But Lord, may we lay these things before You. Lord, I pray that our pride and our indifference would not hinder laying these things at Your feet. Lord, teach us and help us to voice them biblically. And Lord, as we express our pain and admit our struggles, Lord, help us to voice them in a way that we never lose sight of our confidence in your care, even if we cannot see it at this very moment. And Lord, I just close by reading Paul's prayer, which is my prayer for our church here today, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.